This is another MP3 podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle, Australia. And welcome to Pet Chat. I'm Jane Klein and with me our vet today is Mark Simpson, Dr Mark Simpson. And Mark, what will we be talking about today? Well, I'm keen to talk about animals' teeth, a bit of um, uh, pet dentistry I'll uh, have a bit of a discussion about. We're looking inside the jowls, are we? Exactly. <laughs> carefully, of course. <laughs> Very carefully. <laughs> okay. So that's coming up. And Danny Boss is with us as well. Danny, you've got a, an interview with somebody a little different today. This is a little different. It's a 10-year-old junior handler in the dog show ring. Now, my reasoning in terms of getting a junior handler to interview is, uh, yeah, to, to have a talk to him about what happens in the showering and how long it's taken him to learn. Should be interesting. And Julie Tolliday, animal behaviourist, is with us also today, and you'll hear from her a little bit later on in Pet Chat. And our first topic, we're looking at dentistry. Dr Mark Simpson, do, do pets often need their teeth checked and things like that? They certainly do. It's definitely part of our um, annual physical exam. We make sure that we have a look in their mouth. And it's a little bit surprising because um, it, you know, their mouth is so prominent, but often people are not aware of what um, is going on in there. It's not uncommon with, um, with animals for us to find even things like tumours and whatnot in the mouth that um, people haven't noticed, but certainly dental disease is very common um, and there's something that we um, you know, should be always aware of. So is it much the same as, as people? It's surprisingly similar. Um, the structures in the mouth, even though the, the, uh, the bones and the teeth are slightly different, their arrangement is very, very similar. And the, the uh, problems with plaque um, building up at the gum line, leading to infection, um, and then uh, calculus, the hard bony stuff, almost like coral that builds up in the plaque, um, these are processes that are very similar to what happens in people's mouths. So how often should they be checked? Just once a year? Is that enough? Oh, no, I, I think once animals get past seven years, um, uh, dogs and cats should be checked at least each six months and probably um, more frequently than that. Um, in particular, um, animals will have um, uh, a free, uh, an increased need for more frequent checking than that. We've got some uh, breeds, particularly some of the little white fluffy breeds, um, some of the um, dogs that have uh, not necessarily great occlusion where their teeth don't meet up well, um, that, uh, that they'll have additional problems um, and they need to be checked more frequently. So I suppose, like people, if your teeth don't work properly for you, you might go off your food. Not only that, I think it's a, a, um, there's two or three other important problems. The first one is that it's a source of low-grade chronic pain. Um, and that animals are very adept at coping with that sort of thing. Now, certainly if they've got an acute pain, if they had a fracture of a tooth or something like that, you know, their owners would know. But very often the more chronic sorts of pains animals adapt to and may not necessarily show signs, um, and it's something that, um, you know, uh, is very painful. The other thing is that when we have uh, gingivitis, inflammation of the gums, there's a marked increase to uh, blood flow to the gums. And the blood vessels that get there are very fragile. Um, and the large numbers of bacteria can enter the circulation and end up in other locations in the body. Um, certainly, we have seen cases of uh, dogs that end up with nephritis, an infection in their kidney. Um, and in rare instances, it can um, reach a life-threatening point with nephritis and endocarditis infections in the heart. Um, so while sometimes people think of dental disease in animals as maybe 
tending towards the more cosmetic end of the level of care their animals deserve. We certainly don't see it that way at all. It can be very um, quality of life affecting. So supposing you find a dog, for example, that needs some work on its teeth... What happens then? Well, they, they certainly need to be, first of all, checked. And, um, and one of the interesting things is that many people initially um, look to, um, to topical management, I think of it, you know, either trying to scrape the teeth themselves or look for abrasive diets. Now, abrasive diets are good in the early stages. They obviously exercise the gums and, um, and help move away stuff that might be between the teeth. But once disease is set up, they only aggravate the problem. And really, they need um, a dental procedure done, um, just exactly the same as ours, a scale and polish. And, um, and we need um, subgingival planing. We need to get underneath the gums, those little pockets under the gums, and clear all the stuff out. These are procedures, of course, that can only be done under a general anaesthetic, um, and so it does become quite a serious thing to um, to work up. So you can't expect your dog to sit there with its mouth open? Oh, of course. <laughs> I can hardly expect my children to do that half the time. Yes. Um, so are there special dentists, people who specialise in, in animal dentistry? There is. There's one. Um, there's a, a chapter in um, a number of the countries around the world of um, uh, specialist dentists. There's only one registered specialist dentist in Australia, um, but most practices have some specialised training and equipment um, to deal with that sort of stuff. So it's something that can be done at your local veterinarian. And is there something else that owners can do to help keep pets' dental hygiene up? Yep, exactly. They can, there's two important things they need to do. The first one is um, some monitoring at home. They need to like have a look at the teeth and pull the gums back and not be afraid of a little bit of dog drool and, and just make sure they get in there and check. Um, and, um, and they can look at the diet. Um, certainly um, there's many products on the, on the market, and Daniel um, probably highlights some of them, um, that, uh, that assist in uh, controlling the inflammation at the level of the gums. Once they get past that, though, they really need to go and talk to their vet and um, make a bigger plan. There are some other products that can go into the drinking water intermittently that, um, that have a mouthwash type action and decrease the number of bacteria in the mouth. Um, and these things are all good to use in the early stages. Is it difficult to train a dog to use a mouthwash? Look, one of the, it's, a, it's a good question because um, a long time ago we used to very regularly as veterinarians recommend um, uh, there's a, a, a finger glove that has a little brush on it. Um, and we used to regularly recommend people, um, you know, get these, get some dog toothpaste and clean their dog's teeth. Um, the problem, and it works highly effectively if it's done, the problem is in our modern life, if something's really hard to do and the dog resents it, and you could just imagine trying to do it to a cat, then it doesn't matter how you know, effective it is or how inexpensive it is, it just isn't going to happen. Um, and that's what we find with these sorts of products, that, um, that you really have to make sure you tailor the, the uh, preventative program to the comfort of the animal and the, the people that are caring for it. I suppose there are a number of products available. Well, you've got um, oral care foods. Generally in the super premiums, uh, there are oral care diets. And the the difference with the oral care diets, they'll help to control the, the tartar and the plaque. And the kibble is also shaped in a different uh, design to help 
move away that tartar and plaque as well. And then there is the toothpaste and the toothbrushes that can help, but it is awkward at times unless you have a well, very well-behaved dog. And as Mark mentioned, there is a product we have called Pet Kiss, which you put into the water that helps to clear out the plaque and tartar, a bit like a mouthwash, and they just drink it up as, as normal as they drink their, their water from the water bowl. Makes mm. your pet nicer to kiss, eh? Is that what it is? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so animal hy- dental hygiene is, is important too. You're listening to 2NURFM Pet Chat, and uh, we will be coming back. We're speaking to a junior dog handler in just a little while. That is a handler of dogs who is junior. Uh, he may indeed also have junior dogs under his care. That will be coming up next. And, of course, we'll be asking for your calls uh, from round about half past 12 where you're listening to Pet Chat. And, Danny, we have a special guest today. Yes, we'll be talking to Jaden, uh, and he's a junior dog handler. Now, Jane, I was thinking something different in terms of inter- interviewing a 10-year-old, but the reasoning I had was... Often, as I go to these dog shows, I notice quite a few young people showing their dogs. And it's such a great hobby to get into because they get taught responsibility, commitment. They get to practice with these dogs and and learn about obedience and how to show them. And they also get a lot of respect from these dogs as well when they're showing them. And sometimes I'll see, you know, junior handler that's like just only as high as the dog they're showing as well. But they're dressed really well. They hang around some really good people, learn about the hobby, learn about the breeds, and they really enjoy themselves. So it's a good community to hang around with and be with. It doesn't have to be sports that might be really hard on the body. Handling a dog is very easy. So introducing Jaden, who's 10 years old and has been showing dogs for two years now. He lives in Sydney, but together with his mum, travels throughout New South Wales to show his dogs. He has eight dogs at home, and they are miniature bull terriers, Nova Scotia duck trolling retrievers, Pomeranians, and pugs. So, welcome to the show, Jaden. How are you today? Good, thank you. You're enjoying your school holidays? Yes. Now, Jaden, as as a junior handler, what do you like about showing dogs at dog shows? It's fun to be one with the dog. Yes. And a team with and you and the dog. That is important. And when I have seen you work with the dog, you do. You, you work as a team, being one and showing the dog. Now, I also note that uh, you, 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 you look the part. You look really well-dressed. What have you got in your cupboard in terms of uh, your outfits? I have a black pinstripe shirt with a white pinstripe cotton shirt. Yes. And I, that goes with that suit and all my other suits. I have... Three silk shirts, one is gold, one is silver, and one is blue. Yes. I have a plain black suit with a white top, um, lots of ties, and a striped suit with a matching white and purple. Wow, looks like you you must have a walk-in robe to fit all that in. But in regards to your junior handling career so far that you've been doing for two years, what awards have you won? I got first at the Sydney Royal Dog Show last year. Wow. In the 7 to 10 age group. Yeah. I got third in 2007 in the New South State Finals at the Spring Fair. Yes. And followed by in 2008, I got the same award. Wow. In um, 2008, I got the first in the Dowwood 7 to 10 um, age group. Yes. 
And no doubt you're looking, sometimes there's also prizes when, you, when you're a bit older, when you come first, that you can even travel overseas and represent Australia as a handler. You're looking forward to some of that? Yes. Okay. Now, was it hard to learn how to show you and handle your dog? It was enjoyable, so it wasn't really that hard. Okay. Did you have a lot of practice runs in the beginning? Yes. Right. And then as you travel travel on the weekends and do your dog shows, that gives you even more practice and you get better all the time. Yes. What kind of breed do you do you show? Nova Scotia, duck telling retrievers. Yes. Um, I show multiple, a multiple range of breeds in the junior handler ring and I show miniature bull terriers in the terrier ring. Oh, okay. So you're showing dogs for other people as well? Yes. Okay. Tell us a little bit about the Nova, Nova Scotia Duck Tolling Retriever. What, does, what was the breed bred to do? They were bred to arouse the interest in the duck by playing unseen in the, in the riverbank reeds. Right. When the duck come in close enough, the dog lies down and the hunter stands up. The duck takes flight and the hunter shoots. The dog then jumps into the Canadian icy cold water to retrieve the duck. Wow, okay. And must, I'm thinking of the Canadian ice-cold water would be quite cold. Do they have to do that in the shows as well? Not in the shows generally. Um, tell us a little bit what has to happen in the show, Jaden, when you, when you take the dog in the ring. Uh, there's a ring and the dog is to be led around the ring Yes. in different exercises. Some dogs are table dogs, some dogs are not. There to be in a stance that is um, is recognised for the breed in a special stance. Yeah. The judge then will make sure that it's like there is a standard yeah. for the breed, or every breed has a standard, and will run their hand over the dog to make sure that it's within the standard, and ask it to do exercises yes. around the ring. And you have to each dog. Um, you have to sometimes show it differently towards the different breed you're showing as well, don't you? Yes. Well, Jaden, thank you very much for making it today uh, on our show. Very nice to talk to you, and you enjoy the rest of your school break. Yes. Okay, mate. Bye. Junior dog handler, Jaden. You're listening to 2NURFM's Pet Chat, and it's half past 12. We're very happy to take your calls if you've got a question you'd like to put to our vet, our pet vet today, Dr. Mark Simpson, or to our animal behaviourist, Julie Tolliday. They're very happy to talk to you about that. 49216216 is the number to ring to get you through to us. You're listening to Pet Chat, and... Well, Julie Tolliday, welcome to you. It's good to have you on board again. Thanks, Jane. And uh, you deal with animals' behaviour. Yeah, primarily dogs, canine behaviour. Yes. And helping people, usually who are calling out for some assistance with something they're struggling with, uh, and I help them with those sort of problems, usually in their homes. I do do puppy classes and adolescent classes, and tomorrow I start my first growly dog class. <laughs> what do you do in a growly dog class? Well, it's for dogs that are really reactive on the leash who lunge and bark and growl and look like they're going to kill the other dog, but they haven't yet. So it's not for dogs that have put another dog in the vet hospital, but dogs whose owners have become so distressed 
that quite often the dynamic is all mucked up now and the the owners are pulling too tight on the lead. And so we're starting our first class tomorrow. It'll be six weeks and it's just aimed at really building the relationship back with the owner and the dog, making the owner more confident with the dog in the company of other dogs, but with dogs at a safe distance where the dogs can relax, the owners can relax, and I'm going to run them through activities to keep the dogs so focused on the owners that they'll know there's other dogs around, but they'll realise the primary source of focus is their owner. So what sort of things do you find you're dealing with quite a lot in uh, in your behaviourist I suppose the world. really common ones, the common ones that I, I'm relieved about are things like um, they're pulling on the leash, they are um, pulling washing off the line, digging holes, chewing a lot. Usually that's a dog that's anxious and once I get into the home and find out the dynamic between the people and the dog, I realise that if I can raise the status of the owner and just get the dog more down to a, a lower status level where it can relax because it doesn't have to do all those guarding jobs, then the edge comes off the anxiety. Now, it sounds easy to say raise the level of... What, what did you say? Status. Raise the level of the status of the yeah. owner. What does it actually mean? Well, the... Probably the most common idea that you'll hear around is that, you know, it's a pack situation. I don't truly believe that the dogs think that we are dogs when we live with them, but certainly the signals that we give to the dog can either allow the dog to submit and let us do a typical one like dog running to the front door woof 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 and usually the people have rung me and said my dog has got a barking problem. In the mix of everything else I'll tell them to do, I'll say to them, let's not let the dog get to the door first. Let's show the dog that you are capable of greeting at the front door. So we might say, I mean, the easiest is put the dog out the back or have the dog tethered so that when the front door goes, you can go to the door and the dog can be in the secondary position. And I say to people jokingly, the dog will go, hey, they can do quite a good job of that. I wish they had told me earlier that they could greet those other dogs at the door and then bring the visitors in and sit down and greet the visitors first and let the dog know that it's not their job. Most dogs will just relax and go, oh, you can have the job. I didn't want it anyway. <laughs> what about barking dogs? Oh, by the way, I should say we're very happy to have your calls if you've got a call on things to do with veterinary matters for Mark Simpson or things to do with your animal's behaviour for Julie Tolliday. 49216216 is the number that will get you through to us. Uh, what about barking dogs in general? Barking dogs, it would have to be the worst issue that comes up in any neighbourhood. It causes disputes, complaints to the council, threats often between one neighbour and the other. And usually those dogs are anxious because they feel like they're supposed to be doing the guarding or they are terribly missing the owners because there's something wrong with the way they interact when the owners and the dogs are together, usually two bonded when the owner's there. And then when the owner goes and says, oh, you're a dog now, you're in the backyard, the dog doesn't cope. So lots of barking there. And my aim always is to keep it positive, positive, positive. I don't like to bring in any um, aversive therapy at all for barking unless I, no, I won't even say unless. I really don't. I like to work on calming the dog giving the owner more control, making sure that the separation issues between the dog and the owner are comfortable and healthy. And very often, I, that's, once we've got that running and the dog and the, and the human relationship is better and the absence is easier for the dog to take, 
usually I don't have to do much else. Because aversive therapy for a dog that's already stressed, and aversive therapy, I mean things like making loud noises to try to get them to stop. It just distresses them more. Putting citronella collars on, the dogs are cleverer than that. Dogs can turn their heads away from the citronella until the citronella, uh, and so it can go off and they're not going to get it in their faces. They, some dogs learn to bark really hard and fast at the beginning of, wearing the, of the day of wearing the citronella collar so that it empties and then they can bark anyway. So. so, Mark, do you sometimes find that dogs will perhaps create more noise and disturbance and bark a lot if they're perhaps not well? No, not so much when they're not well. Um, I think um, I'd just like to um, reinforce the anxiety aspect of it. We find that that's a real, um, a real focus of uh, a lot of behaviour problems. I think the interesting thing about dogs in general is that they... they do have a social structure which is very compatible with humans, but it's not identical. Um, and so the, the relationships that we develop with them, um, in the past, many people understood that difference, that dogs were, you know, dogs and they had a similar uh, social structure. But these days we introduce them entirely into our family and lots of people without experience expect them to behave like little people and they just are not. And oftentimes the problems arise, the conflicts arise in the dog between their their dog expectation and our people expectation. And that's often where the anxiety arrives. And and certainly aversive therapy, any sort of, you know, punishment or yelling or um, you know, you know if if you know a nervous person who has um, uh, anxiety issues, you know that those sorts of behaviours are just going to make things much worse. Hmm. So, did you? Sorry, Julie, did you want to say something? Else? Well, I, that just totally mirrors what what I would say about the situation. That yes. dogs are looking to the owners to get the message of wh- where they sit in the in the rank order in the in the home and people inadvertently do it i when i talk to people i say i'm not here to blame you many times the people will say i didn't realize that doing that would make my dog think that this was my expectation and most people are very willing to change it and are quite amazed that it's so simple and when i go back and visit them a couple of weeks later they say oh my dog is so much calmer and that's what we want to hear and one of the points, Julie, that I'd just like to emphasise there is that it is um, this is one of those earliest best things that um, that so many times when things have been ticking over for a year or two or three, um, the while the behaviour modifications, the therapies that we'd put in place certainly will make a difference, they take much longer and they're much more difficult to institute. Whereas if we're doing it with pups that are only you know twelve, sixteen, eighteen weeks of age, mm. then these behaviours haven't set in stone in their brain and they're much easier they're malleable and we can change them Um, so if people have problems with their animals early is best is it true to say that there might be some breeds which are easier to train than others or train to help feel happy (laughs) i I groan because danny's sitting in the room and i know he he would prefer us not to um to you know out different breeds do have different characteristics and we don't want to hang tags on them but certainly the more active um, you know your working dogs um, when they're brought into a circumstance where they're not exercising their brain and their muscles we definitely know the fox terriers the kelpies the border collies they're all dogs that are going to find other things to do and they're going to find things that draw attention to themselves and they're often going to be destructive and troublesome and it's not their fault Ah, so start with them young. 
if they're not working and they are working dogs. Well, well, I'd even go further than that. I'd say start before you get them. I think people need to often um, assess. You know, I, I know lots of people who have had a, um, you know, a, a, a particular favourite breed, might be Border Collie. They've seen beautiful working dogs um, in the show and they think, oh, I'd love one of those. They have a lifelong desire to get them. They finally, you know, have enough money to do it. They're working full time. They get the pup. Um, and then they don't have the time to spend with them, and it's just making a problem. So people need to accurately assess the amount of time they can spend with an animal and then pick the sorts of animals that are going to fit with them, and that sort of has to happen even before they acquire them. Yes, that's good thinking. So supposing you are working, what kind of dog would you be looking for if you were looking to, to get a dog? What would be a good dog for a person who's working? Well, I think that um, I wouldn't restrict it. I think um, the wonderful thing about our world at the moment is that um, people can have access to many different pets, and so they don't always need to um, to have a dog for companionship. Um, and so there are other species of animals that might be more accommodating to less hours, um, but certainly the more relaxed breeds. Um, I think one of the things, the reason I hesitate to, once again, not just because Danny's in the room, <laughs> but because um, uh, I think all dogs, even the more relaxed breeds, um, they certainly need a lot of time. There's no, there's no breed of dog that's um, no maintenance, if you like. All dogs need people to spend time with them. And certainly the working dogs definitely need more. Um, people have to be prepared to give up a lot of weekends and a lot of evenings to work their working dogs. Um, but all dogs need people to be with them. Um, and, and I feel it's important not to you know, give people the impression that they can get a particular breed and they don't need to spend time with them. So what kind of animal would suit the, uh, the lifestyle of someone who's not at home much during the day? Well, um, I, the, the sorts, I, I have this um, classification, if you like, where I have um, a, a grade uh, that runs um, a spectrum from, from the sorts of animals that are very low interaction um, to the ones that are high companions, if you like. Um, so the sorts of things that I think of that are great to have around but may not need you there all the time are tropical fish or hermit crabs or um, reptiles. They're not going to need you to be there all the time and take them for walks. You're going to still have to spend some money and time on them, but they're more flexible. Um, and then probably pets like rats and rabbits and um, those sorts of animals are going to need more attention than your tropical fish, um, but maybe not as much as the highly social dogs and cats. Um, so that's sort of the way that we talk to people about trying to pick the pet that's right for them. Um, but certainly um, once they get into um, dogs and cats, they've got to be prepared to spend some time. And it's good to hear boys like Jaden. Um, I know uh, uh, that often it's difficult for parents to spend sufficient time with the animals, in, in, particularly in the modern world, um, and to see young people like Jaden taking up the gauntlet and the responsibility and the commitment. And that bodes well for the future, I reckon. And this is 2NURFM's Pet Chat. Mark. Hey, Jane, I was just um, uh, thinking about, um, with all the uh, discussion we've had about behaviour, I just wanted to relate one of the, the, um, the, the types of um, stories that I talk to people about in the consult room. And particularly, with, we'll often come to, you know, their last vaccination, puppy's last vaccination will be a nice big Rottweiler and um, he's growing rapidly and... And you can just tell at that age they're not doing anything that's nasty, but they're 
they're too exuberant and they're too dominant. Um, and you just know that a dog that's going to end up weighing maybe 50 or 60 kilograms um, uh, 12 months down the track is going to be a handful. And so I often talk to people about the way that a dog will develop in a household um, and the potential point of view issues that might arise. So we often hear in the media about stories about dogs that snap, that have been family pets for ages and, and then they bite one of the children. And I like to look at that from the point of view of the dog. The dog's been um, a member of the family and, as Julie said before, gotten the wrong messages about where in the hierarchy of that family they live. And they've probably been given signals that they're in charge, that they're um, like meant to uh, rule the roost. Now, in a normal pack of dogs, in a normal dog social structure... Puppies would get a free run. They'd, they'd be able to pull on the alpha dog's jaw and do things up to a certain point. And then once they reached a certain age and a certain level of behaviour, the more senior dogs would start to say, hey, that's not acceptable behaviour. And they'd do that by growling at them and pushing them down on the ground. And the pups would leave me alone, roll over, lick their lips and try and get away. Now, the problem in our houses when this sort of behaviour, normal behaviour for dogs is initiated, is that we give them all the wrong signals. So, um, uh, uh, you know, as our young adult Rottweiler we were talking about before um, gets to um, 12 months of age and, and a child is in the family getting to three or four years of age, um, and the Rottweiler goes, well, it's my job to make sure this child behaves as it should, and, and particularly when the parents aren't around, um, if the child's doing the wrong thing, then I'll growl at it, grab it and put it on the ground. And I'm doing exactly what I should be as a dog. And the correct signal, if the child knew, would be to make little whimpery noises and expose their belly and roll away and be submissive. But most children that are in that situation do exactly the opposite. They stand up tall, they scream at the top of their voice, um, they make all these gestures that to a dog are challenging. They eyeball them, they're scared of them, and so the dog grabs them again and puts them on the ground, and, and they get up and scream again. And this goes on for a little while until they're separated, and then the next day in the paper we have a story of a, you know, a dog that snapped and great family pet. If the dog could read the paper, they would be going, look, I was just doing what I was supposed to be doing as a dog. You guys have it all wrong. Um, and this is the classic example of uh, uh, um, the difference between dog society and human society that we've got to make sure we understand and manage to make sure these situations don't arise. Are we trying, in fact, to change the dog's behaviour so that it conforms with our way of society? Well, that's a very typical human... You know, we're, we're good at doing that, aren't we? Um, the problem is that we try and do it. We try and put them in a situation where they behave like people and their, their you know, biological inheritance, just um, their, their behaviour is coded for and they're going to behave in particular ways in particular circumstances um, and we're not going to be able to change them. We're not going to be able to change how they'll respond. We're going to be able to manage the circumstances so that they respond appropriately. So if your child, say, doesn't or, or learns to roll over and... Oh, look, I, I, that's... Um, I'd you wouldn't go expect be, the that's child right. to do no, that. No, no. Okay. I think there's several things about um, that story. The first one is that um, uh, children just don't deal with um, the correct behaviours. Um, and, you know, even um, some of the... You know, Australia Post, for example, now um, they train their 
their um, uh, deliverers to behave in a certain way with savage dogs. Um, it's difficult for adult men to behave in a particular way when a dog's behaving. I think the golden rule with children is that they're never left alone with a, a, a strange dog or even their own um, family pets. They, we need the aura of authority from the parents to be there all the time, um, and that's critical. So, yeah, I didn't mean to rely on that story that that was an appropriate thing to do. I know it happens, um, but I think it's, you know, it should be something that's prevented at all costs. People are people and dogs are dogs. Mm. And we should always remember that in exactly. our dealings with dogs. Do you find, Julie, that um, uh, there's often children involved in uh, animal problems, behaviour problems? Oh, yes. And when I'm explaining to people just the, the basics of... Uh, canine social structure and ours and the differences for example and, and they're always amazed that people when you point it out and they say that really is quite obvious but I never knew primates hug chest to chest dogs don't but how often do you see people grab a dog and pull it into their chest now that's not normal for dogs and the dog will turn its head as far away as it can and it'll turn its eyes away trying to avoid eye contact and little children don't know that, and that's why, yes, the three golden rules for children and dogs are these, supervise, supervise, and supervise. And there is no, no movement away from that. Little kids are at eye level with dogs. Little kids think that thrusting their hand out like you would to a human is what you would do to a dog, but a little child will look eye to eye to a dog, thrust its hand above the dog's head, and the dog will try to defend that part of their body, which is quite a dominant area. Well, that's bringing us almost to the end of Pet Chat today. Thank you very much to all our, all our people. Mark Simpson, thank you, our pet vet today, and Julie Tolliday, our behaviourist, and Danny over there. Hello. I'm Jane Klein, and we'll be back uh, with more Pet Chat next Friday after the midday news to a new RFM's Pet Chat on Easy Listening 103.7.